Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Is God fair? Would you say he's fair if everyone is welcome in heaven? Would you say he's fair if everyone gets in the same way? Would you say he's fair if everyone has to meet the same standard? Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, Excuses, 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 with part two of I Never Knew, which covers Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Thank you for joining us today. We're in a series. If you're new with us, the series is entitled Excuses, Excuses, Excuses. We're talking about the excuses that mankind has used from the beginning of history and continues to this day to excuse themselves or other people who do not love Jesus necessarily, don't follow Jesus, but are good enough that at least we should be able to say, "Uh uh-uh, for these reasons, God, you should not stop me or these people's from getting into heaven. Or to put it in a little harder way, according to the teaching of the book of Romans that we're looking at in Romans 1, he talks about the wrath of God. Now, the series that we are we're in is taking us through Romans 1 through 3. As we walk through Romans 1 through 3, there's some foundations that new people coming in have got to understand, or they go, well, why this and why this way? I'd like for you to think of it in this regard. It has to do with the power of beliefs. I talk about this each week. I want to underscore it again and again. The power of beliefs. We have beliefs, and those beliefs will determine how we think. How we think will determine how we feel, and how we feel will determine how we behave. You can count on it. It just works that way. Particularly, there are three beliefs. The beliefs of God, the beliefs of our self, what we believe about ourself, and the belief that we have about the world and life in which we live. All the difference in the world. What do we believe? I heard a counselor share the story of a of a, uh, a lady, you may have heard me use this or heard this before, but, but here's a, a lady who is in a cabin in the, the mountains and looks up and coming through the door is a 10-foot tall grizzly bear on hind legs with, I mean, the, uh, uh, the claws sticking out ready to kill. And she knows there's no way out. He is in front of the door, looks out the window, realizes two stories up, but that's the only way out. And so opens the window, jumps only to break her legs. The same scenario is told though, this time instead of a woman, a little three-year-old, a little three-year-old looks up and sees this big bear, same claws, same everything. And the little girl says, oh boy, a big teddy bear and runs toward the bear. Well, what changed the different feeling? What changed the different action? It was the way that child and adult thought differently. It was their belief system, the adult saying, that bear will kill me. 
The child saying, that bear will hug me and make me feel better. That's the same thing with God. We walk around, we have beliefs about God. We have this idea that, that, that God should not have wrath. He's not a wrathful God. I don't believe he's that kind of God. I don't think he, as Romans 1.18, two weeks ago, says that he would reveal his wrath against unrighteousness of men. I don't believe that about God. Then what happens? There's the thinking, okay, God's good, God's good, God's good. I don't have to worry about his wrath. I don't have to worry about his wrath. And then here comes a temptation. And the temptation is for something that is wrong, damaging to someone else or oneself, but the feelings are so strong. We say, why not? What's to lose? God will accept me the way I am. I'm okay. No big deal. Minimize sin. Then there's damage and pain and heartache that comes as a result. Or maybe the idea, I'm good. The view of myself. Oh, I'm basically good. Well, I know the scriptures say that there's none righteous, but I think I'm good. That's the way I think because that's my belief, that I am a good person. And then what happens? Tragedy strikes my life. Tragedy strikes somebody else's life, and our response is what? This is not right, God. You shouldn't do this. This is wrong of you to do this because you should be having good things to happen to me and to the people I love, not bad things. You can trace it all back. It goes back, what do we believe? To whatever we think. We'll feel it and we'll act accordingly. That's why so many of us are dealing with anger and bitterness and resentment and all kinds of things because it's just, it's a wrong belief system. And that's why I've been repeating each week just to kind of let this settle in your mind to think this. It is far more important that your pastor and your teacher is helping you learn how to think than it is to tell you and teach you how to behave. That's why you don't want to hear me give one series after the other of just how to do this, don't do this, start doing this, stop. You don't need that. You need to learn how to think. What does God have to say? You learn to think, you learn to feel correct, you learn to behave correctly. So Romans is a series that is going to push us into the very depths of right beliefs. God, self, and the world. Now having said that, I want to go back very quickly and review with you. We began the series with the first of four excuses. Don't confuse that with four presuppositions we began last week. The first excuse that we looked at came out of verse 18, and it's this excuse that we say God is too good to allow. And then we put up whatever that means, allow bad things, to allow, in particularly this context, to allow people who are good people. Just because they're not Christians... God's not going to let these good people who are of other faiths and this, that, and the other, he wouldn't allow bad things to happen to them, certainly to perish forever. And so the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of God, addresses that subject matter. And he does it in this way in verse 18. There's an introduction through verse 17. We didn't look at that. But verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so we spent a week talking about what does it mean to suppress the truth. It can include the gospel, but many people don't get the gospel. 
but they still suppress the truth. We taught that, explained what that means to suppress the truth. Last week, we began with a second excuse, and this excuse is, I never knew. I just didn't know. I mean, how can I be guilty if I didn't even know? How do I suppress something that I never knew? And that Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at that or follow with this. In verse 19, it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so last week we began looking at four presuppositions, if were true, would give non-followers of Jesus an excuse. So we began last week with the first presupposition. Definition, here it is, an assumption which influences another assumption or an action. So you and I have presuppositions. What we presuppose will determine what we suppose or we believe. So we have to dig down. What are those presuppositions? The first of the four that we looked at last week and we'll touch on again today is this. If that person were not guilty of rebellion or divine treason, as I've called it. If that person were not guilty of rebellion or divine treason. Now from there we talked about the fact that no one was innocent and no one has an excuse and I cannot walk back through that, but you may want to get that particular MP3 or CD because there we address the biggest of all questions to the to those that are seeking to figure out the faith of Christianity. Here it is. How in the world can God allow all these things to happen to all these people, for all these people to be considered sinful just because of what one foreparent, the beginning of mankind, did who knows how many years ago? And you're saying that I am going to be credited with his sin. And we took the text of Romans 5 that says, in Adam all die. And gave, I think, an understanding that most probably had not considered. It's the only way to really understand the gospel is to understand the truth of that text. It raised this question. Well, wait. It says here that Okay, everybody can see through creation and the things that God has made. They can see about God and the truth, and that's what they suppress. So we address the question, well, wait, does not Christendom, has it not taught historically through the ages? As David said in the psalm, he was conceived in sin. Do we not believe that? Some of you do, some of you don't. I believe it. David believed it. I know this, that the scriptures teach consistently that we're brought into this world in a sinful condition. So if that be the case, are you going to tell me that the little one in the womb, right after conception, that, that little child can see and understand the things of God? 
They don't even have eyes developed. They don't have ears. They don't have, whoa. And what about people who mentally have been in some way injured or perhaps from birth, whatever the disorder of birth, has not had the abilities to reason, to think, maybe to see or hear. So we dealt with that last week. How do you explain that? And after covering that, I want to now continue with these presuppositions. Three more presuppositions that are critically important that if we're true, would give us a good excuse when we stand before God, even if not a follower. So let's hit the second. Second presupposition is this. If that person genuinely wanted to know God, if that were the case. Now, I'm going to ask the question, wait, does anyone really want God? That's the real question. Let me put it this way. According to the scripture, there will never be anybody who will stand before God after death and say to God, God, I wanted you, but you did not want me. That will never, ever, ever happen. In fact, we have a promise from God in the same book of Romans. Much further ahead, though, in chapter 10, verse 13, we'll put it up. It says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You want the Lord? And I'm talking about on his terms, not on ours. But you want the Lord? You're going to get the Lord. You don't have to worry about that. It is a done deal. It will happen. But here is the question, who will call upon his name? Who will call upon his name? The answer in scripture is those who were dead spiritually, but who have been made alive. Let me show you some scriptures. Ephesians 2 verse 1 reads like this, and you were, now they're Christians, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13, and when you were dead, there it is again, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. He, he made you. This is the passive. He did to us something we didn't invite, we didn't ask. He made us alive together with him having forgiven all of our transgressions. One more verse and I'll try to explain this. In verse 10 and 11 of uh, Romans 3, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. That is a quotation out of the book of, Ro- out of, the book of, uh, of uh, Psalms. And, and the psalmist is saying, you know, look, you need to understand this. You're dead in your transgression. I wonder, why does he use the word dead? What does it mean you're dead? Well, first of all, can you remember when this, the text, maybe you read it, where Jesus is approached by somebody and calls him good teacher? He pushes back real quick. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why, why would you call me good? Uh, there's none good but one, and who is the one that's good? Who would that be? God? He's not denying that he's good or that he's God. What he's saying is this, you don't think I'm God, There's only one who is good, and that is God. So why would you call me good? He's making his point. Many of you have heard my story. If you came through membership and all, you've heard the story 
but I'll repeat it here for those that listen to this as a new series or whatever, but, but um, it really tells it as well as any. I, I grew up in a, an environment, my grandparent was a mortician and so had a funeral home. And so I grew up 50 miles away from where they lived. If you ever visited grandparents, the place to play was the funeral home. It was just a big playground to my brother and me. That's all we knew it as. We got so excited we were going to be going to, to uh, Rome, Georgia, because that's where this funeral home was, and we could play over there. And I remember playing hide-and-seek. Boy, there were so many good places you could hide in the casket room or the embalming room, and there was just all kind of places. So frankly, death didn't, it didn't hit us like so many people that say, ooh, someone dead. We saw dead people all the time, growing up from our youngest ages. So it happened to be that I would see someone who was deceased, maybe a man who's in his 30s and just strong and vigorous looking, and, but he's dead. He's been brought in dead. And I'd look and I'd think, he looks so alive. He looks so good. It just, it was hard to understand. Then they'd bring in somebody from two months previously being found in the woods, having died two months prior. They bring that person in and the smell and the sight, and the, oh, it's horrible. But then the, the question is, you know, which one was most dead? Equally dead. But some look so good. Some appear so alive. Some, I know that, but still dead. And he says, what I've done is I've made you alive. Think about Lazarus. You remember Lazarus, the story when Jesus comes a few days after Lazarus has died, his beloved friend, and what does he do? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets up. Well, why didn't Lazarus get up two days previous? Why does he wait? Till Jesus says, because with that call came life-giving power. He's made alive. Well, that's why he uses in Scripture, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. We have to be made alive, as we read in Colossians. And we're brought to life. Now, was there, was there responsibility and freedom of will at that point for Lazarus? Absolutely. After given the ability, he has the will now the ability to say, I'm getting up. And he got up on his own legs. He didn't just get picked up in the air and drift over to Jesus. He got up. He was responsible. We too put our faith, we put our trust in Jesus. It's our responsibility to do that. But when we do, we know this, I've been made alive. Passive. I do nothing in the passive. He made us alive. That's the active. So with that, we have that excuse that, well, if that person really wanted to know God, yes, that person will be one of God's. No question about that. The grace that we get, as we call it, is irresistible. When he brings us to life, no one can say, Lazarus can never say, I'm not going to get alive. I'm going to stay dead. I'm going to stay dead. No. You come alive, and when you're alive, you're going to get up. You're not going to stay there. Let me give you a third presupposition. These are not rooted in our text as much, but certainly through the Word of God. If God were obligated to provide a Savior, could be another excuse. If this were true, we could say, hey, God, you, you can't not save everybody. You can't not take care of these people. I realize they're of another faith. 
are these people. I know they're not of any faith, but God, we deserve it. Humanity deserves a Savior. If that were the case, do you realize that our salvation would not be of love? It wouldn't be of mercy. It would not be of grace. Our salvation would be merely based on justice. God would have done what God was required to do in order to be just. Folks, that is not the truth of God's word. It's a gift of grace. This is the same root issue as to why people have bad things happen in their life and they become so angry at God. What they're basically saying is, wait, I deserve better treatment than I'm getting. These people and the tribes that have never heard of Jesus, they deserve better than what they're getting. I deserve better than what I'm getting right now because this is what you've done to me, God. This is what you didn't provide for me, God. This is what you should have done, God. You didn't do. And we, it's, it's the same root issue. But the truth is, God is not obligated to give us a Savior. He's not obligated to give us good circumstances. It is because of our own sin that we have the circumstances, the pain, the struggle that we have. I learned this in a, oh, one of the most dramatic ways when I was a, a high schooler. I had a grandmother who I thought truly had to be the most godly woman that I'd ever met. By the way she acted, the way she lived, but then I saw her always in the Bible. She had a library that she left for me that was larger than most pastors' library at the end of their career. And when I looked at what was in the library, I was astounded how good. I found journals where she daily before the Lord journaled the scriptures as she would study and pray. And I watched her at a young age. Though she died young, long before she died, she was put in a a nursing home. And uh, she had such crippling arthritis, she couldn't use her, her hands or anything. She just laid in bed. It was about a mile, less than a mile from my house. And so we visited quite regularly. And I hated going into that place. And I'd see her in that condition. And I'd say, this isn't right. And I remember allowing my frustration to spew. See, I had a wrong view of God and his ways. I understand that. But it was leading to anger and resentment and bitterness toward God. And so I go to a man that was safe, I felt for me, who I could ask the question. Assistant pastor to the church that I was going to. He was a man who was 20 plus years my senior, but was like a close friend. And I think he felt he had the relational capital to do what he wouldn't otherwise have done. But I'm glad he did what he did. Because when I looked at him with anger, I said, you tell me why God allows my grandmother, as wonderful a woman as she is, to live in the pain and the anguish and all that she's going through now. Why? He looked at me and he said, you want to know the answer? It's because she deserves it. And far worse. I'm telling you, I could have taken my fist and, and gone at him at that moment. It so angered me. What do you mean? You don't even know my grandmother. He says, I don't have to know her. She's one of us. She's human. She's a sinner. 
and we deserve nothing. He said, Randy, the real question you should be asking is, why are you even alive? Why am I alive? Why are we in good physical condition? Why? Those should be the big why questions. You see, he had shaped his understanding of self in such a way that I didn't have. I didn't understand. And as a result, I saw what God did, and I made God out to be something he shouldn't be. He wasn't what I was thinking he was, not what I see him as now. Very important that we deal with this third presupposition. If God were obligated to provide a Savior, but he's not, he does it as an act of grace. One more, one final, number four, presupposition if God were wrong to treat people, or if it was wrong, to treat people differently. Now, that's something that you and I really need to grapple with because I tell you, I think that we truly have, uh, have wrongly been conditioned by the American-made discrimination laws of today. We have bought into the idea that you've got to treat everybody the same. That is justice and righteousness. It is not if you want to know what God has to say, that's not true. That's American, but it's not truth. I can remember with my kids, some have heard me share this story, I know, but I, my kids, they, I'd take them out on, a, on dates on a regular basis, and we'd do something special, one at a time. We have four kids, and I'd take one of them, and, and forever they'd say, can I do so-and-so? And I'd say, you know, can I have ice cream? Can I have a treat or whatever it was? And I'd say, well, you know, as long as we get through with it before we go home. Because the other kids are going to see the treat and they're going to complain and grumble and so forth. And then one day I thought about it and I said, I need to be teaching my children. So I said, yeah, you can have something to eat. You can have a treat or some ice cream, whatever, as long as we get it right before we go home. <laughs> and so we did. We got the treat and my child walks in with the treat, enjoying the ice cream or whatever it was. I don't remember. What do you think I heard from my other three kids? Where's my ice cream? I said, well, I didn't bring you any ice cream. They said, well, that's what? Not fair. That's whatever. That's not fair. Aren't we American kids? <laughs> it's not fair. And I go, oh, it's not fair? Oh, well, I didn't realize I was doing something. That means I violated a law, a standard that has been set for the Pope family. I said, now I recall the Pope law because I wrote it. <laughs> and the queen here verified it with me. So let me talk to the queen just a minute. And I go and I say, any laws we violated? Are we ever supposed to bring dessert for treat for all four if we get for one? No, don't recall that. All right, sorry, but didn't violate anything. Didn't do anything wrong. Listen to Webster. That's not a Christian, you know, Dictionary? It's just a dictionary. Webster says fair, acting according to the rules, being just and honest. The kids, I'm being, I'm being just and I'm being honest. What I'm not doing is I'm not showing a favor to you and I am showing a favor to this child. I have the right to do that. I want to teach him a very important biblical truth. I'll take it to you as well, and that is this. The parable of the uh, vineyard laborers in the 20th chapter of Matthew. It's a very interesting text. You didn't probably know the story. Uh, the 
owner says, I need some workers. So he says, I'll hire you for the day for a denarii. Let's say 20 bucks. And then at 9 o'clock in the morning, later, I need some more workers. I'll hire you for 20 bucks. Noon, boy, I need some more workers. I'll hire you for 20 bucks. 3 o'clock, hey, I'll hire you for 20 bucks. At 5 o'clock, end of the workday, and they all show up, and everybody gets 20 bucks. And they say, wait, 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 hey, whoa, these people just been here two hours. Been working all day since 6 o'clock in the morning. You pay them 20, and you're going to give me only 20? This is what he says. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But if I wish to give this last man the same as to you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Simply the point being made here. God is not required to treat all people the same, only fairly. Let me close. Let me ask you the question, truthfully, just to yourself. Are you angry with God? Are you hurt with God because of what he's done or not done? Do you feel, deep down, do you feel that God is unjustly condemning good people? Are you suspicious of the actions that God is taking? I tell you, if you don't root out, bleed out of the system these wrong beliefs, tell you what's going to happen. You're going to find yourself, you're going to find yourself in the midst of life storms. And you're going to say, not fair. And then as a result of that, you'll look at your children and you'll say, God, I can't trust you to take care of my children. I have to overprotect my children. I can't count on you. And then it'll come to marriage and you say, Lord, I can't count on you to bring me the person that I need to be married to. I'll do it on my own terms. I'll find who I like, not who I think you like. I'll do it my way. And let me tell you, that story just repeats itself in every area of life. And then we find that we went against the ways of God and we live in deeper pain, deeper heartache, deeper anguish, because the truth sets you free, not what we want and what we feel. So folks, this was an important one. Deal with the issue. What do you believe about God? And the people who say, you know what? I'm angry with God. And it's okay. Because I've heard Christians can be angry with God. That's the right. If you feel that way, just be angry. No, don't do that. Admit you're angry, but confess it as sin and ask him to deal with it in your heart. We should never be angry with God. Be angry with the evil one. Be angry sometimes righteously with other people or with yourself. But don't be angry at God. He's the only one that is perfect and just. He deserves nothing but honor. Go to the cross. See the great love of Jesus and see if you don't find your heart awakening and you begin to trust him in a bigger way. The truth sets you free. Hang on to the truth as we pray together. Let's bow.
Our Father in heaven, we do ask you that you would allow us to hang on to the truth here. It's not easy. It cuts across the grain of our logic, the way we've been accustomed to believe, and on and on it goes. So do forgive us for where we've been angry with you and help us to trust you for all things of life. Bleed out the stuff in the system that's not right, that we might know your truth and be set free. Be honored because of it, we pray. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.